did the hepatitis B virus say to the newly infected host? What? Liver. I hardly even know her. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's it. That's the joke. That's the joke. I'm putting that in. That's the joke. I'm putting that one in. Hey there, my name is Kayla Dadgar. I'm a gastroenterology fellow for McMaster, and I'm excited to bring you the first of hopefully many episodes related to gastrointestinal health through our new podcast, Guts and Gall. And I'm Jimmy Zhang, an internal medicine fellow for the University of Ottawa, helping out with the production of this exciting new series. Thanks for having me, Kayla. Thanks for being here. Today we'll be discussing hepatitis B. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about the subject because it's uh, not something I see very often. And I would just really love to hear your thoughts uh, about a few cases. And maybe we can um, run through a lot of the breakdown as to kind of everything about hepatitis B. All right, let's get started. So our first case is a Mr. Hepworth Atitis, a 45-year-old man with elevated liver enzymes. His ALT is 75, his AST is 52, and his ALP is 60. He's otherwise previously healthy, but he immigrated from China four years ago and has a family history of hepatocellular carcinoma in his mother. First, can we quickly review the general approach to elevated liver enzymes? Sure. So when a patient presents with abnormal liver enzymes, there's a broad differential that needs to be considered. The list is influenced by the degree of elevation, but for patients with mild liver enzyme elevation, we generally consider viral infections, alcohol use, metabolic and hereditary causes, drug-induced causes, and autoimmune causes, as well as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH, celiac disease, and idiopathic causes. Um, Great. And since this is a viral hepatitis episode, and specific hepatitis B, Can you maybe tell us a little bit as to um, what can put people at risk for contracting viral hepatitis? So there are several factors that can influence the risk of contracting viral hepatitis. Specifically for hepatitis B, the AASLD guidelines suggest screening the following populations and immunizing them if they're not currently immune. So that includes people born in an endemic nation, which you can look up people who are needing immunosuppressive therapy, all pregnant women, infants born to service antigen-positive mothers, people with HIV, people who inject drugs, people who engage in high-risk sexual behaviors, especially those seeking testing for sexually transmitted infections, close household contacts, healthcare providers at risk for occupational exposure, inmates of correctional facilities, and patients with end-stage renal disease. Okay, great. I didn't realize that list was uh, so long. Can you just uh, explain to me what exactly happens after you contract hepatitis B? Like, can you just kind of go through how it actually infects the liver and why is, is it such a resilient infection? Sure. So once the virus enters the cell, the viral genome, which is a circular, partially double-stranded DNA, is released into the cytoplasm and transported to the nucleus of the liver cells. In the nucleus, the viral genome is reverse transcribed into covalently closed circular DNA by the viral polymerase. 
This serves as a template for the transcription of viral mRNA. And the viral mRNA is then translated into viral proteins, including the core protein, the surface antigen, and the viral polymerase. These viral proteins are assembled into viral particles, which are released from the cell and can affect other liver cells. The host's immune response plays a crucial role in the outcome of the hepatitis B virus infection. In acute infection, the host's immune system is either able to clear the virus or the patient develops chronic infection. In 1% of cases of acute infection, the patient develops acute liver failure because of the immune response to the virus, which is life-threatening. That makes a lot of sense, actually, as to why the hepatitis B virus can lay dormant for so long um, and why it can be so hard for our bodies to clear. So thanks for clearing that up for me. Uh, Something else that I often need clearing up is interpreting hepatitis B serology. Could you just break this down for me? Yeah, so hepatitis B serology is a group of tests used to identify and monitor the different phases of hepatitis B infection. Um, Okay, so if I remember from my core internal medicine training, I do kind of remember all the tests and what they all represent. So maybe I can go through the tests and then maybe you can help me with the interpretation of them after. Sure. So there are five tests that we send for hepatitis B, the surface antigen, the surface antibody, the core antibody, the E antigen, and the DNA PCR. The hepatitis B surface antigen is used to detect the, pri- the presence of viral surface antigen in the blood, which indicates an active HBV infection. The hepatitis B surface antibody suggests prior exposure to the antigen, which could be from previous infection or from immunization. The hepatitis B core antibody is used to detect a natural infection of the virus, uh, and this will only be positive if the person has actually been infected with the virus, as the core protein is not included in hepatitis B vaccines. The E antigen test is used to detect the presence of the E antigen, which suggests that the virus is actively replicating. The DNA PCR tests, uh, that tests for active viral load. So with this in mind, can you go over how you interpret kind of the different permutations of these serologies? Sure. So generally for patients with chronic hepatitis B, um, we would divide those patients based on their hepatitis B E antigen status. So you're either E antigen positive or E antigen negative. And if you're E antigen positive and your um, hepatitis B surface antigen is high, the hepatitis B viral DNA load is elevated, um, and your but your ALT is normal, and you have minimal to no liver disease, those patients are have chronic hepatitis B virus infection. Whereas in those patients that are hepatitis B E antigen positive with elevated ALT and some suggestion of liver disease, those patients would be considered to have chronic hepatitis B. And if they were hepatitis B E antigen negative, similarly, um, if they had a low hepatitis B surface antigen, you know, a lower hepatitis B 
virus DNA level, so less than 2,000 international units per milliliter, normal ALT, you would consider those patients to have chronic hepatitis B virus infection that is hepatitis E antigen negative. Similarly, if they had elevated ALTs and suggestion of liver disease, they would be considered to have chronic hepatitis B and BE antigen negative. For patients that have a negative hepatitis B surface antigen, those patients are considered to have resolved hepatitis B virus infection. Um, but you have to remember that hepatitis B is a dynamic infection. So those patients uh, still would require some monitoring given that because the virus can lay dormant inside of your liver to cells like we talked about, you could develop hepatitis or active infection later on in life. Okay, so to summarize, we split hepatitis B into E antigen positive and negative disease. Positive suggests active replication and higher burden of disease. However, if they have evidence of hepatitis, such as ALT elevation, then this would be an indication to treat regardless of uh, E antigen positivity. Um, there's also some indications to treat and uh, things you have to watch out for for monitoring, which we'll go over after this, I assume. But in general, this is the reasoning for the current way that we classify hepatitis B. Am I getting that right? Yeah, so it's just a simpler way of looking at things. Um, because chronic hepatitis B infection does not require treatment. The whole purpose of treatment for hepatitis B is to suppress the virus and suppress inflammation of the liver, which can lead to cirrhosis and, and complications of liver disease. For patients that have uh, active hepatitis, they require treatment um, because there's that risk. So going back to our case, is there anything on history or physical exam that we should look for? Yeah, so about a quarter of patients that develop chronic hepatitis B in the first few years of life will go on to develop progressive liver disease such as cirrhosis or HCC. So you can look for evidence of chronic liver disease on exam, including things like asterixes, ascites, peripheral edema, spider angiomas, icterus or jaundice, and signs of bleeding such as melina or hematochesia. Great. Now, I, I do remember a few of these from my recent World Caller setting, but could you go over with me some of the extra hepatic manifestations of hepatitis B? Sure. So very briefly, you can get arthritis, dermatitis, polyarteritis nodosa, which is a medium vessel vasculitis. You can get glomerulonephritis or nephrotic syndrome. With the glomerulonephritis, you generally present with nephritic syndrome, so hypertension, hematuria, AKI. Whereas with nephrotic syndrome, this tends to be a membranous nephropathy and you get the significant proteinuria, hypoalbuminemia, and peripheral edema. You can also develop cryoglobulinemia, which may be associated with systemic vasculitis and symptoms such as purpura, arthralgias, peripheral neuropathy, and glomerulonephritis, but is often asymptomatic. Okay, so what investigations do we need to send for this patient? We will want to assess his synthetic function, so we should send an INR, bilirubin, creatinine, albumin, and CBC. Repeating his liver enzymes would be important to determine their trend. 
and you can add on blood work for other causes of chronic liver disease. We could also do a Doppler ultrasound of his abdomen to ensure there's no vascular reasons for elevated liver enzymes such as clots. So if our patient were to get a biopsy to you know, help us maybe rule out other causes of liver disease, um, what sort of evidence would be on this biopsy that would help us decide that their elevated liver enzymes are from a hepatitis B infection? The only histologic feature noted on routine light microscopy that is specific for chronic hepatitis B is the presence of ground glass hepatocytes, which occur from accumulation of hepatitis B surface antigen particles. Okay, so you see this patient follow up three months later, his blood work is back, and you find out his hepatitis B surface antigen and core antibody are positive, and his IgG is at the upper limit of normal. All other testing is negative. So based on this patient's history, investigations, lab results, what is our current diagnosis? Our current diagnosis is hepatitis B infection, likely chronic, but we'll need two separate positive tests six months apart to confirm this. So we briefly touched on this earlier, but do you treat everyone for hepatitis B? No. So there are specific criteria to treat hepatitis B infection, and this is because our treatments are not curative. They just suppress the virus. So in order to determine who should be treated for hepatitis B infection, you want to look at their ALT, which suggests liver inflammation. And it's really important to know that the upper limit of normal for women is about 25 and for men is 35. So that can uh, be a subtle difference that might impact your decision to treat or not. Generally, we consider an ALT elevated enough to require treatment if it's at least two times the upper limit of normal. And you'll also want to consider the hepatitis B virus DNA level, as higher levels are shown to be associated with greater progression of liver disease. So if their DNA level is less than 2,000, but their serum ALT is elevated, you should consider other causes of liver disease, because unlikely that they'll have a significant hepatitis from hepatitis B with a DNA level less than 2,000. Additionally, according to the AASLD guidelines, you should treat patients uh, who, if they have cirrhosis or acute liver failure, regardless of those numbers. If they have reactivation after immunosuppression, those with fibrosis greater than stage one, regardless of their hepatitis B E antigen status, if they have a DNA level greater than 2,000, if their ALT is greater than two times the upper limit of normal and their hepatitis B virus viral load is greater than 20,000 for the E antigen positive patients, greater than 2,000 for E antigen negative patients, like we mentioned, those with extra hepatic manifestations and pregnant patients in the third trimester with high DNA levels, so greater than 200,000 in this case, and the goal of that suppression is to prevent fetal transmission. Uh, I'll also note that there are a number of genotypes of hepatitis B, but generally this doesn't impact treatment decisions. Okay, so specifically for our patient, what should we advise them to do at this follow-up? Our management plan includes testing for hepatitis B virus DNA, as well as the E antigen and the E antibody. And we would recommend vaccination for all immediate family members and household contacts. We'd also perform HCC surveillance, including ultrasound, every six months. 
the reason that we do this is based on criteria for who needs screening for HCC. So that includes Asian men aged 40 years or older, Asian women aged 50 years or older, persons of African origin aged 20 years or older, and that's due to a high risk of HCC even in non-serotic patients, all serotic patients irrespective of age, family history of HCC starting at age 40, and all HIV co-infected patients starting at age 40 as well. So if our patient does need treatment, what options are available? The two current options available are pegylated interferon alpha and nucleoside analogs. Pegylated interferon alpha is contraindicated in advanced or decompensated cirrhosis, but is a finite therapy that lasts 6 to 12 months. It also has significant side effects such as flu-like symptoms, bone marrow suppression, depression, and hypothyroidism. To monitor patients, you start on this medication, you should do a CBC monthly to every three months, a TSH every three months, and clinical monitoring for autoimmune, ischemic, neuropsychiatric, and infectious complications. In terms of nucleoside analogs, so such as entecavir or tenofovir, they're generally taken continuously but have minimal side effects and can be used in cirrhosis. It's also important to talk to your patients before starting them on treatment about the importance of being compliant with these medications because you can develop resistance to the medications if you take them intermittently. For tenofovir, you would give 300 milligrams daily and potential side effects include nephropathy, Fanconi syndrome, osteomalacia, and lactic acidosis. Patients should be monitored with creatinine clearance, serum phosphate, urine glucose, and protein at least annually. And you can consider bone density studies at baseline and during treatment in persons with a history of fractures or risk of osteopenia. For entecavir, you give 0.5 to 1 milligrams daily, and it has relatively few complications, only including lactic acidosis, which can be investigated if there's a clinical concern. Uh, what if our patient doesn't meet criteria to treat? How and how often should we monitor? Yeah, so as we said, hepatitis B infection is a dynamic infection. So even if they currently don't meet the criteria to treat, they may meet that criteria in the future. So generally, for hepatitis B E antigen positive patients with persistently normal ALT, they should still be tested with further ALT every three to six months. If they have an increase in their ALT, they should have their ALT and hepatitis B virus DNA tested more frequently, and their hepatitis E antigen status should be checked every six to 12 months as well. I guess that concludes our first episode of Guts and Gall. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of our podcast. Thank you again, Kayla, for having me. Yeah, we hope you found the discussion informative and enjoyable. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media. That's uh, at guts, the letter N, and then gall. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform.